Hey, Whitney, what do you want to do for our big 100th episode? Let's do a regular episode. Interesting. That's my pitch. What do you think? Well, it's cheap. Greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste make an explosion noise. Good old explosion noise. You've served us well, explosion noise. And look, there's a quacking duck. No. Ah, dang it. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to dig through your uh, your sound effects archive. No, this, episode's, this episode is late. It's been a really rough couple of weeks in California. We are not, I'm not doing extra posts on this episode. We need to get this okay. episode out. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic of some stripe. I write for various outlets on the internet, including uh, IGN. I wrote an article for... TV guide recently. Still exciting. So I'm I'm well, you know, it's still so, exciting. I, I, mean I got it. I got a byline. I can put that on my resume now. It's there forever. No, it's a cool byline. I'm I'm dead serious. It's cool. And and with me as always is my scintillating and intelligent intelligently intelligent co-host. <laughs> Everybody, I'm William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. And everybody calls me Bibbs. And this week on Critically Acclaimed Reviewing, get this, a bunch of movies. Isn't that exciting, the way that happens? Yeah. You, you tune into a film review podcast, we review films. We're going to be reviewing Countdown, Dolomite Is My Name, The Gallows Act 2, Girl on the Third Floor, and Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Uh, for those of you who've been wondering why the Critically Acclaimed Network has been sparsely populated lately, <laughs> um, a lot of stuff happened. Well, it's mostly smoke and vomit. Uh, that's... <laughs> Can we make that our new tagline for the Critically Acclaimed uh, Network? Mostly smoke and vomit. <laughs> Absolutely we can. Okay. Um, uh, there was a day when my son got sick, so yeah. I was home uh, with my sick son, so I couldn't record then. Uh, then my wife was sick. It kind of passed through my wife, and then it eventually made its way around to me, and I was vomiting. And I couldn't record because I was vomiting. I mean, we could have, but you would mostly been vomiting. No, that would not have been an interesting podcast uh, to listen to. Uh, strike that. It would be interesting. Well, perhaps interesting. Okay. That's certainly a word for it. It would be, it would be noteworthy. I'll yeah. say that much. Good? No. Uh, noteworthy, yeah. But in addition to all of this illness... California is on fire. Literally, if you're not following the news, California literally on fire. It's uh, the, a, the most recent fire to break uh, out is like you can see the plume from our window. It's actually really close to us. Yeah, I'd say it's like it's like what four miles away. It's about four miles. It's on the Sepulveda yeah. Pass, which is like uh, just a couple miles up the four hundred five from us, and. Um, because of that, my kid's school closed because the air quality has been so poor. So I've also been at home hiding indoors away from the smoke with a four-year-old. Also not ideal recording uh, scenario. So, Couldn't get a babysitter. These things yeah. happen. Um, for those who have asked, mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, Whitney and I and our families are fine. I'm, I'm no longer vomiting. Well, we're not on fire. It, yeah, the vomiting clearly is over, right. but we are we are not on fire. We are inland enough in like sort of the concrete jungle of Los Angeles mm. that we're probably going to be okay. But we are so close to the fires that it creates a lot of problems with traffic and air quality, and it's mm. 
And as a result, there's just problems we run into and it's been hard to record. We're going to try to catch up this week. Uh, we are very, very sorry for those delays. It's the last thing we wanted to happen yeah. for a variety of reasons. And for everyone who is more than inconvenienced by those fires, of course, a heart goes out to you. There are a lot of different places where you can contribute to help people out. People mm. are losing their homes and their health yeah, and everything, pe- and it's really bad. Pe- people, like, every everyone's being evacuated. LeBron James was evacuated. Mm. Well, like, no, LeBron James's house was evacuated. Well, his- you can't evacuate a person. Uh, well, that's well, if you're well, evacuating a person, that means then LeBron James is vomiting. I was about to say, then they're then they're getting a, an irrigation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Le- LeBron. We really James need to had- change that topic of conversation. <laughs> we're not going to bring that up ever again. No, we're not. Happy 100th episode, everybody. Yeah, this is our spe- our very special 100th episode, and it's very special because it's not special. Um, yeah. No. Well, it, it, we don't have anything like out of the ordinary planned. But we do have a very good podcast planned for you. Oh, yeah. No, we're, and we're, we're going to review the films uh, that came up this week. Yeah. It's Halloween week. And as every year, it's a kind of a bad Halloween. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a little frustrated that all of like the big Halloween releases tend to come out either in August, which is a little mm-hmm. unusual, like the big horror uh like spectaculars, the big blockbusters. Yeah, either come out in August or like, early September, um, like uh, it chapter two. I think oh, it was a, second, uh, first or second week in September. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's like some big Halloween release that comes out like right at the beginning of October. So it's always out of theaters by the time you reach Halloween. Yeah, that's the thing. It used to make sense to release a horror movie like the end of September. It would play all throughout October. Mm. It would be available in theaters that whole time, and it'd be great. Nowadays, things the, the get pushed out of theaters. Yeah, yeah, things get pushed out of theaters. You should have. I understand maybe not wanting to put one out the weekend of Halloween because maybe you only have one good weekend. The weekend before, at least. Yeah. Man. At least. I mean, like, we have Doctor Sleep coming up. It's the sequel to The Shining. It's from the director of the guy, uh, the house on uh, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Right. Not the house on Haunted Hill. Right? That always messes me up. <laughs> um, it's acclaimed series. He also did Oculus and he did, you know, really great pedigree. Why the fuck isn't that coming out on Halloween weekend? It it's makes total, no sense. Totally baffling to me. I, I guess there's not. Maybe studios figured out early on that there's not a big market for going to see a film on Halloween or Halloween weekend. I mean, I, I did that. I usually went to go see, like, a midnight show on Halloween right. of, like, some horror movie. Like, like the the Saw movies made bank on that. Yeah, they, and every every Halloween for seven straight years, a Saw, yeah. Saw sequel came out. Yeah, on or around Halloween. Mm. And it printed money. Mm. <laughs> and I don't understand why they stopped printing money. Mm. It seems like printing money is a good way well, to get money. I, I, did, uh, I did see that series, and good golly, they got convoluted by, like, even by, like, the third one. They were really oh, yeah. too convoluted, and they just got more and more twisty after that. I actually love the Saw movies specifically for that reason. If you watch, like, the first seven, like, if you make a weekend of it, <laughs> and watch, like, all seven in a row, it's, mm. like, one insanely complicated movie. Yeah, they all, like, yeah. intertwine, and, like, the beginning of Saw 4 is actually the middle of Saw 6, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And, but if you're not two, watching them all... Two to- of them take place at the same time, yeah. so they have this climax at the same time. So if yeah. you're not watching them all together, it can be really difficult. Like, I, I didn't watch most of them in theaters. Yeah. I, I saw some of them in theaters, but I didn't watch them all. And, like, it, I can't imagine keeping track of everything a year later mm. and picking up on every single nuance. I interviewed the writers of, like... Saw three through six, or you know, that, th- that think, big chunk. I think four through seven were all the same team. Uh, that or thereabouts. Mm. And I, but I interviewed the writers of it, and I was just like, "What was your like 
because a lot of writers have a board. It's a big uh, uh, bulletin yeah. board or a dry erase board. And what you do is you take different plot points and characters mm. and you put them in on cards. And it gives you an opportunity to see the entire thread of the movie mm. all at once. And and I can re- rearrange things to make the, yeah. the story more satisfying. What was your, I said, what did your outline look like? And they were just like, dude, it was so complicated. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, it was like, it was like, the, it was like the, the shack from Beautiful Mind. It's just like, ah, oh, it's so weird. So, um, the, so the pink note is the wife, and this this is this is this before or after Jigsaw is dead? Okay, because because Jigsaw dies halfway through the series. Never, but tr- he's in all the movies. Never trust any like. Like if you're if you're like working at a yarn store and like a jittery guy in a, like a trench coat <laughs> comes in to buy yarn and push pins, you're just like, oh, this guy's on to something. <laughs> what what have you got for me? You have a yarn developing fluid and a lot of bulletin boards. <laughs> Red flags. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, let's get to let's get to some movies, shall we? Let's get to some movies. Uh, the big release that Whitney and I both saw this week mm. is actually a Netflix movie. Yeah, that's probably the most prominent film, and I was very excited about this film for a variety of reasons. It's called Dolomite Is My Name, and it stars Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore, mm. a uh, pioneering stand-up comedian from the 1970s. He'd also done earlier work, but he mm. hit his stride in the 1970s. Well, who then c- directed, wrote, and starred? Oh, I'm sorry, he wrote and starred in the hit black exploitation movie Dolomite. Yeah, and, and and other movies besides, like yeah. the Human Tornado, and uh, which is a Dolomite uh, sequel. Yeah, yeah. also um, uh, Avenging Disco Godfather. I didn't see that one. Which has the the rather haunting "Put your weight on it." Uh, describing Rudy Ray Moore as like a comedian or a filmmaker does not do justice to what a strange presence he has occupied in popular culture. Yeah, um, maybe he's like a slam poet. Uh, stand up comedian, but like a really dirty stand up comedian who put out records rather than doing like being known for being a stand up. Well, it, it's it's like the, he, he did stand up and he did like po- like these dirty poems live, and we get to see scenes of that in the movie. Yeah, there's scenes uh, of that in Dolomite, the original Dolomite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he his delivery was such that like he would do this sort of like scattershot on the beat, almost like beat poetry. Yeah. To the point where a lot of people credit him for pioneering rap. Yes, that's true. Um, which is one hell of a thing to be able to say yeah. you pioneered. <laughs> uh, and and his style didn't come from nowhere. And as we see in the biopic Dolomite Is My Name, it evolved from sort of oral traditions, uh, rhyming traditions mm-hmm. of legendary figures be they in an urban environment or you can even probably trace it all the way back to the stories of a Nazi the spider and um it's really exciting interesting stuff when you look at it and I love watching Dolomite is my name because there's so much respect for everything Rudy Ray Moore mm. did well the, I think that's what I like about Dolomite is my name it was uh, written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski who are known for doing biopics of uh, quirky outsider type individuals. They did uh, Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, Man on the Moon. Big Eyes. Uh, big Eyes, yeah, about the Keens. Uh, well, Margaret Keene. Well, it's about Mar- both of them. It's about Margaret Keene was the artist. Margaret Keene was the artist. Ar- uh, Margaret Keene, the artist, and her husband who ripped her off. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, there and uh, we actually got to interview them once, and we can't say like what we saw in their office. We signed a non-disclosure agreement, <laughs> but they actually have artifacts all around their office about all kinds of outsiders and weirdos that they've been thinking about writing screenplays about. Yeah, like they were clearly doing research and on a lot on of a lot of different people, kinds of yeah. interesting people. Curiously enough, I don't recall seeing anything about Rudy Ray Moore. No, I didn't either. Oh, do I have another office somewhere full of stuff? There, there's there's one. Oh, I wish I could say who it was because. They might actually write this movie someday. Uh, I, I just know hope- what you're talking about. Yeah. Too. yeah. There's one weirdo outsider artist who occupies a very bizarre and unhealthy yeah, art yeah, culture. Yeah. Boy, I'd love to see a biopic about that person. But anyway, <laughs> we're, we, we, we will go no further. We'll go no um, further there. Anyway, they have a really excellent way mm-hmm. of taking real people and making them, regardless of their actual, the actual like extent of their cultural influence, feel like legends. It, he, they make them feel like legends, uh, and they're only ever interested in celebrating these people. There's a, a warts and all approach to a lot of uh, biography filmmaking, mm-hmm. where we're going to show them like all of their talents and all of the great things they did, but also like all of their flaws and all of the horrible things they did. Yeah, and that can fall very easily, and often does fall very quickly back into cliche. Mm-hmm. Like remember when Walk the Line and Ray came out? It's like Johnny Cash and Ray Charles like are not at all alike. But you watch their movies, they're exactly alike. Yeah. Because those movies are exactly alike. They follow really common beats. And, and you know, here's the scene where they uh, have their first hit. Here's the scene where they're writing their future hit. Here's mm-hmm. the scene where they take too much drugs. Here's the scene where they get into a fight. Here's their low point. Here's where they're in prison or, mm-hmm. you know, in rehab, whatever it is. And it all starts to feel very pat. Uh, Alexander and Karaszewski only want the good stuff. Yeah. They only want the positive stuff. They want to point out that these weirdos and outsiders, even if they're not good people, like you could argue about Larry Flint. He, I think you, I don't even know if you can argue about it. <laughs> Although I will say there are parts in the people versus Larry Flint where the movie pretty much admits, yeah, he's a slime ball. He, he, yeah. He's <laughs> just kind of, right about this first amendment thing. He's, he's a, and, and that's kind of the argument. It's like, well, you can be constitutionally correct and still be a sleaze. Yeah. That doesn't protect you from being a, a, a kind of a jerk in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but I think this time around, even more so than Ed Wood, uh, these screenwriters are really trying to do nothing but show just how great their subject is. Yeah, but I don't. I do feel like it's not totally fawning either it's no, just his, no, no. his flaws are meant to inspire as well yeah um and i'll be honest here you know you say it's not a warts and all biopic and you could maybe argue that you know maybe there's dark chapters in rudy maymore's history that we're not exploring i don't know i'm not his biographer i don't know all those details mm. what i do know is that watching dolomite is my name and i'll talk a minute about the plot but mm. watching dolomite is my name was a hilarious and genuinely inspiring sequence the last line of dialogue in this movie like completely warmed my heart like i was like oh i love that it's one of my favorite last lines of dialogue in so long um, the, the, the thing they say or what appears on the, 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 thing the chiron the thing, oh, okay. the thing he says um but uh yeah so it opens with rudy ray moore and he has been trying to break into show business for a really long time mm-hmm. he's had Music records didn't work. He's doing stand-up comedy. It's not working. The, the opening scene, he's trying to sell one of his songs to a DJ played by Snoop Dogg. And there's a really great reveal in that scene where you realize that even the DJ isn't doing great, and it's really funny. <laughs> um, and 
he eventually realizes that there's like this whole homeless community that's doing this weird, you know, rhyming poetry, oral tradition stuff. And everyone sort of is amused by them and sees them as a cultural artifact. And he was like, what if I took that and made it funnier? Mm. And I, there's actually something that you rarely see in any movie, which is you see Rudy Ray Moore writing jokes. They breeze over mm. really quickly, mm. but the idea is, you know, a lot of people think you're just funny or you're not. You workshop jokes. Yeah. You no. come up, okay, here's the premise of a joke. Okay, that punchline sucks. How can I rework that? And it's him trying different things, different exaggerations. And yeah, it, he burns it out over the course of an afternoon, but it probably took him weeks, if not months, to get that material correct. Mm. Um, so I appreciate that it shows that effort. And then he mm. emerges as a new character, a, uh, a, a pimp, who is a rhyming oral tradition, cocky <laughs> braggart who says incredibly profane things mm. at a time when profanity in stand-up comedy wasn't... I mean, there was Lenny Bruce, but it wasn't super common. It was yeah, considered uh, something you couldn't put it on an album. At, at least not in the mainstream. Yeah. And, and I think that's uh, an, another thing that they're getting at uh, with this film is that Rudy Ray Moore... Uh, first of all, he he was a, a hero in the black community. Mm. Uh was an inspiration to both Eddie Murphy and Snoop Dogg, who are both in the film. Yeah. Um, but even within that community, he was an outsider. So he's working within outsider as, as an outsider within a sort of essentially a, a marginalized community. Yeah. And I think that is what's making him all the more heroic. Not only that he's able to become a hero within a marginalized community, but he's able to sort of break out and... Uh, open up the community to a, a broader white audience, for lack of a better term. Well, just a broader uh, audience in general. There's uh, a really great line where someone's like, hey, "Listen, we deal in records that like and movies that appeal to yeah, people yeah, yeah. all over the world, and you only appeal to this like one five blocks." Mm. And he's just like, "But here's the thing: that five blocks is in every city in the world. Their that community <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. I may only appeal to a niche audience, but that niche audience is bigger than you think." And that is something that every cult artist of any kind mm -hmm. understands. And yeah. sometimes it's better to appeal to a passionate group of smaller people, a smaller number of people, than it is to appeal to the mainstream, kind of. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Murphy does a, a pretty good job. Uh, he gets a lot of... He's a good actor. He's he gets... Good. And he, he acts the part very well. I don't think anybody could really replicate what Rudy Ray Moore actually was. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Because Rudy Ray Moore, I don't know how, how he managed to, like, you say he's workshopping jokes and he's making sure everything is really perfect. You watch his movies, those things look sloppy as hell. Well, that's the movie. Uh, that's and, not stand-up. That's a different yeah, thing. Stand-up, he was doing stand-up every night. And so that that improves over time. But he only he has, had one chance to make the film. He, he, he's really sharp, but I think part of his sharpness was that he tried to look really off the cuff. Yeah. Uh, that, that's something you'd say for a lot of comedians, actually, like Eddie Izzard does that. He's like, duh, 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 I am improvising. He workshops all of that. Exactly. All of those little noises that sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's part of his act. Exactly. And, uh, work and, it that, out. and that was part of Rudy Ray Moore as well. If you ever get a chance to see, because um, Eddie Izzard does, it's actually a really good example of this. He does a lot of different specials, but he sometimes records like the, 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 the video special version of it mm. earlier in his like tour or later. Mm. So if you watch his, his arguably his best one is dressed to kill. It's yeah, an incredible that's, work. That's of the one that that's, yeah, made, it, made it most famous. One of an Emmy. He's fantastic. Um, that was recorded towards the end 
of his tour, and you can tell because everything is beat for beat perfect. Mm. Um, if you listen to the audio version, like the CD you can get of Glorious, it mm. is workshop to perfection. If you watch the video, less so. It's a lot, a lot, a little more roughshod. Yeah, just the timing is just not quite as off, and the punchlines aren't quite as sharp. Mm. And if you just if you listen to those, if you watch one and listen to the other one back to back, you'll see that as you tour and as mm. you do the same routine over and over again it gets better. Mm. And that's something that, again, you can do in stand-up that is harder to do in a film. Yeah. And Well, I, I, yeah. given the way his, his stand-up worked, you know, it was really sort of tightly put forth, but in a way that made it look it was like it was really imp- improvisational. Yeah. I like to think that even though they dramatized the filming of Dolomite in this movie and sort of the, the screenings, just like they did in Ed Wood, mm. there's a lot of parallels, um, and you can see that it was really kind of rough shot and they're like carting around, you know, dummies and setting up all the squibs and shooting just completely guerrilla style on the fly. They're shooting a, a car scene. They, you know, swerve around a corner and splatter everybody with mud by accident. I like to think that Rudy Ray Moore did every single one of those things completely deliberately. Like being, <laughs> being able to see the boom mic, like he constructed this weird kind of piece of uh, deliberate outsider art, if you will. Well, let's talk about, uh, I, I, I want to get us up to the, in the mm. film, to the uh, creation of Dolomite real mm. fast. So he uh, eventually distributed his own albums, got him, made himself mm. a star in a small community. You can still and then get record- them. And they're, yeah. all, they're horrendously crass, by oh, yeah. the way. Um, but, uh, and like, the, even the, the, the covers yeah, are Yeah, there's nudity on the covers. There's, one, one of them is it's um, called Eat Out More Often, and oh god, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, eventually he became popular enough in his own cult milieu, take a drink, mm-hmm. that record companies actually came calling, uh-huh. and then he's like, okay, great, let's make a movie. Dolomite's a cool character, we could make a movie out of Dolomite, and that was a really hard sell, people didn't want, pe- people didn't think, like, studio executives didn't want to see this, like, 40-something guy who looks like me like in terms of physicality like you don't want to see that guy be an action star having a lot of sex on camera and it he had to get it made you know put his own money up he had to get it made guerrilla style with an inexperienced crew and what he ended up making was a hit film made a lot of money yeah uh, Dolomite is the story of a pimp who is in jail, and then he's get, he gets called out of his cell by the warden, who's been investigating him. <laughs> like, he confuses a <laughs> warden with, like, a police detective. And the warden is just like, I'm gonna let you out of jail, Dolomite, but you have to catch the guys who, like, put you in here. And you're just watching this scene. It's if like you've ever bit. seen Dolomite, you're like, is it stupid or brilliant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's stupid or brilliant. And what you realize is it's kind of both. Mm. Because there's an absolute sincerity to Dolomite as he guns around and he, like, trains all of his uh, sex workers in kung fu to be his kung fu <laughs> army. And, like, he's, like, there's a scene where they try to assassinate the corrupt mayor and everything. And it's a crazy film. Mm. Um, but, like, it's totally sincere in terms of they think this is cool. Mm. They believe in the sort of inherent social messaging. It's blunt. But it's not complicated, but they believe in it. But all of the incidental stuff is absurd. All the fight <laughs> choreography is absurd. All the jokes are absurd. Mm. All the sex is absurd. The, the dial, just the, all the dialogue. Yeah, and I think that I think it's half and half. I think that's the beauty of Dolomite mm. is they never intended it to be taken seriously. Mm. 
but they also didn't have enough skill to do it better than they did. So they just embraced what they could do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the beautiful oh. thing about Dolomite. You watch it and you connect to the people who made it as much as you connect to the characters on screen, if not more. I've heard people refer to Dolomite as a a, a satire of or or some sort of like weird comment on the way black exploitation was working at the time. That was contemporary with a lot of black exploitation. I would include yeah. Dolomite right next to something like Shaft. Mm-hmm. Rather, Came afterwards, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, several years apart, but... Um, the tropes had been had been established, yeah. and Dolomite was consciously playing into them. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, I, I'm not sure if it is a satire, though. Like, it, it's, it's, like you say, it's playing off the tropes, and it's definitely a comedy film. Yeah. But Dolomite is a very sincere hero, and I think, I think that might be the thing that... Uh, when Scott, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski choose to write a topic, you know, choose a subject, yeah. it's that sincerity that I think they're interested in. Yeah. Rudy Ray Moore was sincere. Mm-hmm. He may have been a little bit aware about how silly Dolomite was, but he believed in Dolomite. Yeah. Hence the title. Dolomite is my name. And that's why the movie itself mm. is, in addition to just being, it's sharply written. I think mm. Eddie Murphy gives his best performance in a really a long, long time. Well, and he hasn't, he hasn't worked for a while. He hasn't, he hasn't worked. No, by, by choice, I think. But, yeah, uh, fine, yeah. but like he hasn't done anything. He certainly hasn't done anything like ambitious from a character perspective mm. since at least Dreamgirls. And that was like 2006. That's yeah, a that was, while ago. That was a while ago. And he's good in Dreamgirls. I like him in Dreamgirls. But like, this is much more, and you can tell he's really invested in it. He cares about the character. Mm. He's not just doing shtick. He really is invested in the material. And I love him in this movie. I mm. think he's, it's very clear he's working from a place that he's familiar with, not just Rudy Ray Moore, but the industry. Yeah. And I think that makes his performance seem all the more powerful. Um, there's a lot of really good people in the supporting cast. Wesley Snipes uh, plays, is it, was it Derville Johnson? Oh, golly. Uh, the director of Dolomite. Wasn't Rudy Ray Moore. <laughs> a lot of people assume it was Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was actually Wesley Snipes, uh, who was playing an actor who had been in quite a few uh, black exploitation films already. He had a small role in Rosemary's Baby. Wesley Snipes is on yeah. fire in this D- movie. Duval Martin is. Duval Martin, thank you. Sorry, driving me nuts. Yeah. Um, Wesley Snipes is hilarious because he thinks he, he's too good for this. Mm. And he knows he's too good for this. He's also <laughs> not too good for this like he's like for all like he he couldn't direct a better movie than dolomite mm. like apparently like even granted he didn't have a lot to work with but he really wasn't pushing it and this was a really great bit because it seems like he's getting on board and he gives like there's a really sweet moment where he goes up to after all of their clashes he goes up to rudy ray moore and he tells him a story about john cassavetes who was doing what rudy right. ray moore was doing but in a totally different level mm. of seriousness and genre yeah and then the last shot, they do the last shot in the movie, and he's like, fuck it, I'm out, screw all y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the premiere. There won't be a premiere. <laughs> he's still but, funny. But still, still a hit, though, Dolomite. Oh, huge hit, Just yeah. but it was an uphill battle. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that is very inspiring to see. And what I love about a film like Dolomite is my name is that it shows you that success is possible if you work your ass off and mm. do it from the ground up. However, and, and it, you believe in it. That's and you believe the important part. Yeah. But no, I don't think it's I don't think believing it is the important part. I think it's an important part. I mm. think it's two things. And I think this is one of the things I love about Dolomite. It's believing in it and putting in the work. Well, yeah, also that. Dolomite is about putting in the work. Dolomite is about people who ordinarily wouldn't get to do stuff like this. Actually, getting to do getting stuff, to do like, stuff that. like that. There's a there's a really great 
uh, supporting turn from one of them. Make sure I get her name right. Divine Joy Randolph. Oh, as as uh, Lady Reed. Yeah, Lady Reed. She plays Queen Bee in Dolomite, and she is funny. Yeah, she is sweet. She's sincere. Rudy Ray Moore, like I I know the speech you're about to talk about. Yeah, she gives she gives Rudy Ray Moore a speech about how thank you for putting me in this movie. I don't see people like me in this movie, Mm. in these kinds of films, in any in any movies. Yeah, just just large women (laughs) do not get roles and things like this, and uh, that was a big deal. There's a really uh, real fast before we move on. There's the funniest scene I think I've seen all year is the scene where Divine Joy Randolph is talking to. A white character actor mm. who specializes in playing racists. <laughs> it's one of the. Fu- I'm not going to ruin it for you. It's one of the funniest oh, damn gosh, scenes. Yeah. It's so damn good. It's so damn good. It's really brilliant. It's it's good because I've I've seen those like I've I've seen those kind of like tough looking puffy faced guys in yeah. a lot of movies, and I wonder what it is like. They go into central casting. You'll be playing the racist. Oh, that's fine. I've done this like 18 times before. Yeah, it's got to be a weird thing to get typecast as right uh, like you don't want to be recognized as the racist on the street i know you you're a racist in 42 yeah yeah do you like it <laughs> it's weird what, what was i good at playing the racist <laughs> I, I i feel that's happening with um uh sam rockwell a little bit yeah <laughs> like he's he's played a racist in several movies he's now playing a lot like he played he went from like three billboards to being in jojo rabbit and mm-hmm. he's gone for, he's like the yes i'm the horrible human being who has like one redeeming quality so maybe you like him well i think his he I, that's just his shtick, I suppose, as yeah. a performer, or he's just really good at it. And yeah. Anyway, that's off topic. Anyway, uh, Dolomite is my name is one of my favorite movies of the year. It is just infectiously joyous. Yeah, it is nothing but positive. It feels good throughout. the The tense moments aren't all that tense. I think the tensest moment is. Uh, it's actually another recreation from Ed Wood. It's like, oh, worst movie you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Yeah. Um, well, there's a scene it's where similar he's similar to Ed yeah, Wood. I think it's fair yeah, to say. And. Um, there's another scene where he's in a phone booth. Like, he just rolled out of bed and rolls down to a phone booth because he's staying in a theater. And uh, it's a theater, right? Uh, no, it's a hotel. Uh, it's a hotel. And, uh, yeah, they converted so, a hotel into a soundstage. So he's uh, he's just sort of in his under things talking on a payphone, <laughs> saying, like, oh, yeah, so what do you think of my movie? Nope. And he looks at a clipboard. He's just crossing off studios that are saying no. Yeah. It's like that. That's about as harrowing as it gets in Dolomite. Is well, there's a scene where he's like financially destitute. No one wants the movie, but it's so good. Anyway, listen, it's on Netflix. You have no excuse. See this movie. It might help if you've seen Dolomite. It also might not because um, they they show they only show the production of Dolomite, but they. I assume because the scenes were more interesting, they also throw in some scenes from the human tornado. <laughs> like, not all well, the scenes that they film are from the film mm-hmm. Dolomite. Some of them are from Rudy Ray Moore's other films, which is a little odd. I uh, I, I, I projected this. Uh, Netflix struck a print and yeah. gave it to the New Beverly, where I work. So I've, cool. I actually have seen this film numerous times now. Uh, and, uh, and Larry Kierzewski, one of the screenwriters, came down to answer questions, and uh, he actually has addressed that. Oh, yeah. Whereas, like, why, why if, if it's about the making of Dolomite, and it's called Dolomite is My Name, why are these other scenes? He's like, well, we wanted to do everything. Mm. With the, the screenplay that they wanted to write was all the movies, and they realized that would get repetitive after a while, but they realized they needed to get a few Rudy Ray Moore-isms yeah. into the film. 
No, Dolomite. So they had to isn't... recreate some of those scenes from other movies just to get a lot more, like a little bit of the famous lines of dialogue. Well, in there. Dolomite is not the most eventful film mm. ever. Actually, if you watch it, there's like a couple of really great highlights. There's also a lot of downtime <laughs> in Dolomite. So I totally get it. It makes sense, like from a writer's perspective. But mm. if you think about it from a logic perspective, a little weird. So in any case, uh, Dolomite. If you want to see Dolomite, is on Amazon Prime right now for mm. nothing. You can just watch it. Um, and Dolomite is my name is on Netflix. See it. I think you'll be really, really happy. Uh, what did you think of the new horror movie, Countdown? Uh, Countdown is big piece of crap. <laughs> so, and you'll know it's a piece of crap when I describe the premise. So, uh, Countdown is a modern horror film for a modern audience. Mm. A modern audience that's on their phone. Now, it's always dangerous if, to make a movie that's trying to be contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no context whatsoever. Um have you ever gone to a have you ever gone to a movie and noticed all the kids are on their phones using their apps? Well, what if the app was the thing that was killing them? Oh no. Countdown is about an app, an iPhone app that you download. That it's called you. Countdown and it shows you when you're going to die. And if you click the user agreement, okay, how does this work? Let's see. If you click the user agreement, then you are beholden to the countdown clock. But if you do something that would obviously seem like it's saving your life, it violates your user agreement, but then you still die when the countdown clock says. Basically, here's how it would work. If (laughs) if, If it wasn't supernatural, here's how the countdown app would work. You download the countdown app. And then it just gives you a countdown. Mm. And the countdown for most people is like 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. Every so, once so, in a while, it's, in, it's like tomorrow. Mm. And as a result, like, ooh, spooky. It sounds like I'm, a party app. Like, I've actually heard mm. worse ideas for apps. Like, it's I'm, a little I'm, morbid. Yeah. It's fun. I'm, I'm a die in three hours. Yeah, whatever it is. It's a little morbid, maybe in poor taste, but it's a thing. Um, but, and the thing is, that's when you'll die, and that is when you'll die, and you'll get in a car accident at that time, mm. or you'll have a heart attack, or something horrible will happen to you. But if you know, like, oh, I'm going on a road trip tomorrow, well, I better cancel that road trip, mm. then you will still die at the same time, but this time a demon gets you. Yeah. So, you're gonna die either way. Yeah. So, I- I'm not sure why they had to add that little wrinkle of the demon getting you. It could, well, I think, I think that's the only thing that makes it not Final Destination. Well, it's the same thing as Final Destination, only we see the thing that's putting all of these death machines into into action. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think it's also mm. not Final Destination because we know exactly when it's going to happen. When Final Destination, they're paranoid all the time. Mm. Here, they're like haunted by like demons who are just like, ah, we're going to get you. And I'm oh, like, that's that's another thing. Yeah, yeah. If, if you change your plans, yeah. and you don't go on that road trip, and the demon, the demon doesn't just come after you. Uh, that that moment, the, the, the moment your countdown clock runs out, it also starts like lurking about you and freaking you out and appearing as the ghosts of people you knew. Which makes no sense because um, I know I'm not going to die until tomorrow. Countdown, demon. Yeah, and they don't actually play with this. But if you if you know you're not going to die until tomorrow, wouldn't you be like? immortal for now that's something they played with in final destination 2 there's yeah. a guy who knows he's like not he knows he's not next mm. um on the you know because in, in final destination a bunch of people they, uh, they, fi- they gonna... die in a disaster and they die in a certain order yeah but then uh, the as, disaster as, is reverted yeah as a, according to somebody's psychic vision these psychic visions are the things that are really tripping death up yeah so somebody has a psychic vision of their friends dying in a certain order in a big calamity 
they undo that calamity and then death starts coming after them in the order they would have died. Because they were supposed to die. Mm. That's that's the rule. And when, and, and when I say death, I just mean anything. Yeah. Those movies are so great yeah, it's just, just in their efficiency. This is Rube Goldberg machine and you never know what's the thing that's going to kill you. Like, oh, I left this paperclip at home. Mm. And somehow that kills you. Like in this weird domino effect. It's a ca- really a cat brilliant. will knock it into a fan. It'll fly into your eye and yeah. knock you out a window. Like it's super duper mega brilliant. And in the second one, which I argue is the best one, Sterling has the best kills. Uh, I, I would say the third, but all right. Yeah, whatever. Right? Well, the second one has the log truck sequence, yeah. right? Okay, that log truck sequence is pretty awesome. At the very least, it has the best opening disaster. Yeah. That freeway pileup is terrifying. <laughs> um, but there's a guy who knows he's not next, and he's like, you know what? I believe in all of this now, but I just I just want to be in control of my own life. I don't want to be in control of my own death. I'm just going to kill myself now. Screw death and its plans. And he grabs a gun, mm. and he tries to shoot himself in the head, and it's a revolver. So he shoots six times. And it was loaded. All six were duds. <laughs> he cannot die until it's his turn. And the, I remember listening to the commentary track. That was something they wanted to play with, but they never found a right place for it. Oh, okay. Um, however, it also seems like kind of a bad idea. Like, ah, I can't die until tomorrow. I'll just jump off a building today. Fine. You'll be in a coma until yeah, tomorrow. Exactly. Like, you still get hurt. Well, at least address that in the movie, though. They yeah. don't do anything clever with this. They, there's yeah. So... The protagonist is a young nurse uh, played by somebody who, an actress who looks like a lot of other actresses. Um, I remember the characters. Now look, I'll look up her yeah. name. She deserves this. She, she, she deserves her credit. Of course she does. She did act in this movie. She got you know got a paycheck and did the work. Uh, Elizabeth Lale. Uh, Elizabeth Lale, and she plays a, a young nurse. She just became a nurse, like she passed her nursing board exam and is now yeah. promoted in, in her hospital. Uh, she works for Peter Facinelli, an actor that you might remember if you were paying attention to supporting actors in the 90s. Or if you saw Twilight, he played the dad vampire. That's right. He was dad yeah. vampire in, in yeah. the Twilight movies. Um he, uh, ge- generous, warm man, I'm sure, but he's good at playing creeps. Yeah, and in this case, and he's playing a uh, a sexually harassing boss. Yes. Um. So, but that's kind of neither here nor there. It's not really important until later. The big thing is one of her patients, uh, who lost his girlfriend in a countdown incident, uh, is told that he sees that his countdown is he's going to die tomorrow, and that's when he's scheduled for surgery. Hmm. Uh, and then he tries to escape it, and he ends up dying in a mysterious circumstance. And at this point. Our hero is like, oh, well, maybe there's something to this. Ah, crap, I downloaded that because I thought it was a joke. Mm. And she finds out she's going to die this weekend, and she already changed her weekend plans, and now death is coming for her. Here's, here's the, the, the dire warning that Countdown seems to be giving to audiences. Read the user agreement? Read the, yeah. <laughs> Don't download idly. <laughs> <laughs> Always even, read even the if user it's agreement. even if it's free, really look into what that app is because you don't know what it's going to be doing to you or your phone. Which is actually good advice. It, There's uh, a lot of apps that are actually kind of, like kind of insidious, but it, I mean, it's it's a little weird to have it like death be the the result of this. I know. Well, uh, and th- also and also, yeah, read the user agreement because you don't know what kind of weird satanic things you're agreeing to. I, one of my favorite things in um, uh, there's a lot of tech thrillers, and almost mm. every tech thriller sucks. Like if you once it gets supernatural, once your phone is haunted, once your TV is haunted, most of the time they suck. I know there are a couple of exceptions; they're rare. Mm. There's it happens in Countdown and it happens in Friend Request where they like go into the HTML code uh-huh. and they realize like oh no the HTML code's in Latin. It's, got gl- it's like spells in the code. So Look, stupid. It it's stupid. I'm trying to think of like what the equivalent would be for like the tech we grew up with, and you know we we have t- 
thrillers with the tech we grew up with, sure. like an answering machine with like a mysterious ghost on it or a Polaroid. Yeah. And that's kind of spooky to us, right? I, I think that's spooky. When, uh, the when, like the white, is, like go, hearing ghosts and like white noise—that's terrifying. It's not a tech thriller. It's not a. But mm. uh, the one I distinctly remember is the ghosts being seen in the television set of Poltergeist. Oh, there you go. It's not, the whole movie isn't about that. It's incidental, but and, that was and, scary. And they're in this the static, which is something like just the things that are picking up the signal when a TV gets a signal that's nothing. Like yeah. It's not picking up a signal. It gets that static. And white it's, noise. You know, the yeah. white, and the white noise. And the ghosts appear in that. That's something we're... Com- and it's kind of scary if you look at it. If mm. you've ever watched TV late at night and just had the static going. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in one of my friend's neighborhoods, there was... Uh, he was convinced it was haunted because every night they would tune a TV to static and put it right up against the second story window facing outward into the street. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. And, and they just did that every night. It was just terrifying. They left the TV on like that. I'm not sure if they were crazy or trying to scare people, but kids would come by and they'd take pictures of it. That's super weird. There's a, the one I remember very distinctly that worked, it wasn't mm-hmm. Supernatural, but it worked, was Scream. And a lot of people don't remember that as being a tech thriller at the time, but um, I, if you watch it, especially if you watch it in an audience, this line always gets a giggle now. Oh. Um, it's uh, when you find out that like the killers were like stalking people on cell phones. Mm. And they're like, that means he could call you from anywhere. <laughs> like he's, and not, like, he's not calling from home. Like he's calling from anywhere. Like, oh, snap. Mm. Uh, well, yeah. That's the way phones work now. Yeah, I guess oh, yeah. that's, yeah, that's, not, just... <laughs> that's not that crazy now. But at the time, that was pretty novel. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. No, so was... where, where are you? I'm on my landline. <laughs> I'm back at home. Um, yeah, and so... I'm trying. I was trying to keep an open mind while watching Countdown. That yeah. maybe this is just a matter of me being an old fuddy-duddy, and I don't. I'm not so deep into the tech that I don't get anxiety about downloading apps or right. reading user agreements because I don't. Because I don't give a care. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there are people who are so involved in their phones that mm-hmm. the idea of downloading an app that will kill you is a legitimate anxiety. I think. Even with my mind that open, Countdown still sucks because the tension sucks, and I think the filmmakers kind of know it. That's my thing. And that's that's why I don't dislike this movie. The the protagonists are pretty boring. Oh, uh, that's and true. and the, the whole drama involving the protagonist and she has a dead mom and she's trying to get along with her estranged father and sister and she doesn't mm. communicate with them very well and is trying to rescue her sister is being very defiant. All that stuff is totally boring, and about half of the movie is devoted to it's it. It's like it's really hackneyed. However, but they they at least got a lot of really interesting supporting players to prop up this piece of crap movie. So, so I have a different take on this movie right. than you, and I, I agree it's not a quote-unquote good movie, but I enjoyed watching it. <laughs> okay. And the reason why is because yeah, the first half is dumb. Mm. It's functional. like it's, it's not like incompetently filmed or acted or anything like that. It's just not very interesting, and the premise is dumb. It's when you start getting to the second act, and when you're dealing with uh, horror movies, usually about supernatural things... Mm. You usually have you know have a protagonist who doesn't know what they're talking about, so you have to bring in people who do mm. to explain the rules, how to defeat this thing. You need ex- exposition person. Yeah, a Vincent D'Onofrio and Sinister. What you've got is a Bagul problem, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Literally phoning in his performance. Yep. Uh, so you need to bring one or two people in who knows. And in the countdown, you need to bring two people. You need to bring in a tech person and you need to bring in a demonologist. Mm. Both of those characters are mega funny. Like, literally, intentionally, genuinely funny characters. Yeah. And that right there, they're so broadly funny mm-hmm. 
that I started to realize this movie is not taking itself too seriously. It's just backloaded. Okay. Like all the funny stuff, all like because then then we start playing around with you know how to create like protection circles and how we're going to get around it, and then it starts getting kind of creative and goofy and fun. The second half of this oh, movie, I had oh, kind of creative, no, I, maybe. I'm just saying they start playing with it. All right. They start playing with it, and they realize the premise is dumb, and we're going to play with it. And then they start playing with it, and I had a really good time in the second half of the film. I wouldn't call it a great film, Mm. but I did have a good time watching it on the movie's own terms, because finally the movie admitted, look, we're not really taking this seriously either. And I'm like, oh, okay then, great. I was worried for about half a film (laughs) that you were taking this seriously. You really should have tipped your hat earlier. They really needed to tip their hat earlier. It shouldn't have been maybe a broad farce, but they really needed to know, let us know that they're in on the joke. There was a film that did that recently, and it had a sequel, Happy Death Day. Yeah. Happy Death Day. First of all, silly, fun title, right? Memorable. (sighs) Great title. And it's about somebody who who gets killed by a slasher. The first one's ostensibly a horror film. Second one, not at all. They just go straight into the sci-fi thriller uh, route. I love (laughs) like the the daring it takes to change genres in a franchise like that (laughs) so so quick. But uh, yeah, she uh, she gets killed by a slasher, but then wakes up the previous morning with all the memories of having been killed by a slasher, having to relive the same day over and over again, getting killed by the same slasher every day. It's a ground it's Groundhog Day, mm. but every time she dies, she's murdered. There is charm and glitter and wit and humor all throughout that. Jessica Roth, the lead actress, is destined for stardom. She's great because she's so great in those movies. Yeah. So I've seen it done. I've seen them do something dumb like Countdown with a lot of scintillating humor. There's not enough of that in Countdown. It feels like an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, a, a little bit of credit to uh, the, the people you were mentioning. P.J. Byrne plays the exposition man. He's, He's the demonologist. Funny. He's a, a young priest. They go to their priest and the priest says, well, I'm not an expert on this. But I know someone who is, and you think it's going to be like some guy living in a cave, and he's got tattoos, and yeah, he's going to play by Robert Engel, yeah, Tobin or Bell yeah. is going to be there, and and I, actually he was in uh, um, uh, mm. uh, Belzebeth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, Bell, he yeah. played that 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 character. Um, instead, we get a guy. He is living in a basement. But he's a stoner priest who's just waiting for his Grubhub, who's just really likes demon shit. And he's never run into one, but he's read all about yeah, it, like, and he's super stoked about all of this. He's like, oh, and look at this old text. It's about an ancient gypsy curse. Remember all the ancient gypsy curses in the Bible, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's completely unbelievable, but he is so excited that he's putting some energy into the film. Maybe the film doesn't even warrant that, but I'm glad he's there. Yeah. Also, can we retire the gypsy curse can we retire? Because it's it's here's the thing, people. Well, it's racist for one. People don't talk about how racist that is. Like gypsies are people. It's an actual group of people, and it's really racist to say that they're all monsters who are going to curse you if you wrong them in the slightest way. Like, can we stop that? There's got to be a better. It, it's such shorthand. Like you can tell. Like even the people in the movie. Like once you hear the word gypsy curse, even the people in the movie can't even say it yeah. with sincerity. It's like it's a. Gypsy cars, yeah. and then uh, <laughs> like you just no more. Can we please just the, retire that? I cut the cheese and blamed it on an elderly gypsy woman who happened to be passing by. Big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we seriously, we need we need to um, cut it out. Um. Anyway, listen, I, I don't I don't want to devote much more to countdown. <laughs> is, is kind of a piece of crap. It's, Come on. it's kind of a piece of crap. But here's the here's the difference it's, it's between just, this just movie as and stupid as it sounds. Here's the, there, I'm going to compare it to some other supernatural mm. techno thrillers we've had lately. Friend request 
the one about a girl stalked by a ghost on Facebook mm. uh, doesn't know it's bad. Yeah. It's amazing to watch, it's, and I actually oh, highly recommend it. But it doesn't know it's bad. It, it, it's it's one of the, it's a special kind of bad that you do need to watch. But yeah. it's it's a terrible movie. The unfriended movies don't know they're bad. No. They just don't. Mm-hmm. Countdown knows, but I don't think it it has the right tone. I don't yeah. think it finds. Right. I do think, however, that it isn't a complete wash. And if you want to watch a cheesy horror movie, mm-hmm. you might have a good time watching this. And as a result, I don't dislike this movie. Right, I, because I think it does kind of work on its own terms. It just doesn't work very well. I, I, I dislike it just because I, I feel like exploitation... Like, it's taking a lot of the... And this, this is true of, like, a whole generation of horror movies now. They're yeah. taking a lot of the tropes and the ideas of exploitation, and they're taking the exploitation out of it. Yeah. And they're not devoting, like, that extra energy to drama or realism or something different. So there was a time when something like Countdown would have come out, a tech-based thriller, but it would have been made by somebody like Herschel Gordon Lewis, who clearly has a really low budget, works with really bad dialogue, but goddammit, he's going to grab your eye with gore. He's got an angle. Yeah. I feel like Countdown, rated PG-13, yeah. takes a dumb idea and isn't really playing up the violence or the sex or the the horror of the situation at all. Yeah. It, no, you're right about that. It feels it, it feels like it could. It it's a like, toothless exploitation movie. It feels like it easily, with just a little trimming, and it wouldn't even hurt the movie that much. Be it PG, yeah, yeah like it like, could have been. Um, like the the monster is kind of scary, but you just turn it like redesign the monster a little bit, trim like a few seconds of violence, and you have a PG rated film. That's not the end of the world. I actually don't think rating really matters in a horror or movie. But like, get a really creative death. Somebody's head is crushed by a falling kitten. I don't know. <laughs> Luca, get in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, like somebody gets forced through a gigantic laundry mangle. Make something really horrendous about I this. Know. No, no, yeah. it's 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 going by half measures, mm. and that is that that's what keeps it, I think, from being great camp. Yeah, I think if it had gone the full nine, it would have been great camp. It mm. doesn't. Um, so we got three more movies, and unfortunately, Whitney hasn't uh, yeah, seen. Yeah, I only these. saw two this week. So. I'll try to be as quick as I can. Mm. Uh, there's two more horror movies that opened last week. One of them is really good. One of them, not so much. Whitney, which one do you want to hear about first? Uh, tell me about the... We just talked about a bad one, so tell me about a good one. Girl on the Third Floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring a wrestler named CM Punk, who I'm completely unfamiliar with. I got through the entire movie not knowing he was a wrestler, thinking to myself, this guy is great. This guy could be really? the next Bruce okay. Campbell. This guy's really funny. So... Girl on the Third Floor is basically if Sam Raimi directed The Money Pit. <laughs> Go on. Isn't that a great pitch? Uh, a guy uh, has just bought a kind of dilapidated third three-story townhouse in mm. a small town. Um, he, he has got a pregnant wife. She is working. She has a job. He doesn't. Uh, for reasons that are eventually explained, but basically he was a stock market scam artist and now no one will hire him. Hmm. Um, so she's still working and it's he has taken it upon himself to fix up the house uh, for her and the new baby. So the, most of the movie is just him alone in the house doing fix it shit. The house <laughs> is haunted as fuck. <laughs> I love it. Like there's like sperm coming out of the light sockets. Oh. Like it's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird, you guys. Um, and a lot of it is just him trying to fix things and there's weird stuff in the walls and there's weird goop everywhere and it's fun and it's gross and it's odd. And then we gradually start picking up on there's some might be 
someone living on the third floor that he just keeps missing, which is a really creepy thought. Mm. The house might have a really creepy history in the community. And on top of it all, there is an incredibly alluring next door neighbor uh, who keeps coming over with beers to hang out. And of course, he is very, very tempted. And that leads him down a path to utter ruination. (laughs) And boy, is his fate incredible. Sounds amazing. And then the movie goes on, actually. It's got like a third act, which... Mm. Yeah, maybe goes a little too far in terms of exposition, but it isn't out of ideas yet, and mm. I'll give it a lot of credit for that. Um, Girl on the Third Floor is the real deal. Like, oh. I actually highly recommend it. It's funny, but it's also scary, and I'm I'm not squeamish. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I talk about gore, and is the gore in good taste or not, and it's possible to do tasteful gore and untasteful gore. It's also possible to do untasteful gore really well in a totally awesome way. <laughs> and, um, I think this one goes there, but mm-hmm. there's also, like, a few things that happen that get, like, put under someone's skin that I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Please no! Things, like that's things really, put under people's skin. That's not good. Yeah. There's a really scary imagery in this one. Um, without going to spoiler territory, they end up dealing with a pet peeve issue of mine, and I feel they kind of demonize something that gets demonized enough. Thank you very much. All right. Um, but I also feel like they make it specific enough that it's not really worth super complaining about. Mm. It's just, if you, like me, care about this issue and these people, then you might find it mildly frustrating. Right. Uh, but as a mostly one-person-in-a-house horror movie, it's really inventively filmed. There are a lot of interesting, bizarre set pieces. Um, yeah, this is a great, great film. I highly recommend this horror movie. If you want to see a new horror movie for Halloween, it's not too late, unless you're listening to this after Halloween, I guess. Uh, But uh, I highly recommend Girl on the Third Floor. I don't want to ruin it for you. Just Mm. check it out. It's really, really good. Sounds amazing. I I really wanted to see this because uh, this was one of the first times I got swag. Oh, yeah. Publicists like to send critics stuff occasionally. Just Usually to, it's just to promote their films. It's like a, a here's a, a kazoo yeah, for yeah. our kazoo movie yeah, or, or whatever. Or, or yeah. like here's a calculator. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. But here's a calculator and with our with it's our like movie a, brand. The lamest mm. one I, I ever got, and it was mm. kind of adorable and how lame it was because from a huge studio. The only swag that I'm aware that anyone got from Blade Runner 2049 mm. was a fidget spinner with like a glowy light on it. <laughs> and it just had Blade Runner 2049 in the middle. And I was like, it's okay, like, you know what? I I love that you even bothered doing this because it's, it's barely anything. It's something you do at a kiosk at a mall. Yeah, it's not like handing someone a hat. Like, I think, I, I think, um, like, people got, like, it. Chapter two hats like ball caps with like yeah. Dairy Maine or whatever mm-hmm. on there. Like that's a that's a real thing. Oh, well, that's, I don't think that's critics, in the movie they yeah, wear those in the movie. I don't yeah. think people should accept most of those things. No, I it's, think you, it's a yeah. wa- it's they're totally a waste of resources. But yeah. uh, girl on the third floor sent me cupcakes. Yeah, got real cupcakes. They don't. They really didn't send have... me a screener. <laughs> they really should have. I would have preferred a screener. <laughs> Just give me the movie itself. I you don't need these cupcakes. You know what's not in the movie? Hmm. Cupcakes. <laughs> Is there a human heart in the movie? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, because there was a human heart on top of one of the cupcakes. Okay, then like a yeah, little, okay. little edible human heart. All right, then that makes sense. I All was right. the, that, that's not completely out of nowhere. I was just like, there are any cupcakes in the movie? I know that some people for the movie Parasite got like a delivery of peaches, mm-hmm. which actually does relate to the movie. And yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I, I see where that comes from. Um, yeah, the cupcakes. I'm like, there are any cupcakes? Human heart makes a little bit more sense. It, it, uh, but yeah, all... they really should have let you get a screener of the movie so you can so review I can actually it. review the film. Yeah, it's a shame. But in any case, it is really, really good film. Right. Um, not so good, mm. but better than you'd think. 
is The Gallows Act 2. Well, you were a, a proponent of the first The Gallows, No, right? I wasn't. Oh, you weren't. I think okay. you're confusing it with something else. Right. Um, you might be confusing it with As Above, So Below, which I am a big proponent of. Well, I, think I, I too. I've seen that one. Okay, yeah. well, The Gallows was one of the last prominently major theatrically released found footage movies. Yeah, before the... The bottom. Tre- fell the out. trend just sort of sputtered and died. Yeah, and there was a long-lasting trend. It lasted for like five or six years, where there was a ton of really prominent found footage horror mm. movies, and they still exist and they're still getting made, obviously, but they're no longer the driving force in the industry that they briefly were. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to sort of look back on that in ten years and go, "What the hell? Wow, okay, that was a, <laughs> such a weirdly specific genre." <laughs> um, the Gallows was. A really bad movie. Um, it's about a group of kids in high school, and they're putting on a production of a play called The Gallows. Mm. Um, the opening is kind of scary, actually, because it's like they're putting on like it's like The Crucible, you okay. know, some some like old timey thing about people being hanged, persecuted, and, yeah. yeah. And uh, there, there's got to be a gallows, hence the title. Exactly, but uh, it actually and it actually kind of makes sense to be found footage in the first scene because it's someone recording on VHS this high school production, and you know it sucks and everything. But then they do the scene with the gallows, and then someone actually gets hanged, and their neck snaps, and they die in the middle of a school production in front of everybody. Mm. That's a scary scene. That would be terrifying, especially if you're a parent. Like, can you imagine? So. It's been, I think, 10 years or so, and no one's put on that play, obviously, but there's a new generation of kids, and they want to put it on, they want to take it back, they want to, like, get past this, you know, this stigma of, like, the school theater program and everything like that, and they want to do it right this time. And there's this, like, football jock who's been cast in it, and he doesn't want to do it, and he's really bad at it, and so his asshole friend... Which happens in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, his asshole friend... Um, who walks around everywhere with a video camera being a real piece of shit to everyone, Mm. and you hate him so much, (laughs) and he's the protagonist of the film. He convinces him... Is this set in in the present or VHS days? I think it's a little bit in the past, but not not very far. Um, He convinces his jock friend, and his jock friend's girlfriend, or almost girlfriend, uh, to break into the school after hours and destroy the set. That way you don't have to be in the play. He does this on camera... They break the set on camera, and then when, like, the goody two-shoes girl in the theater program happens to be there as well doing stuff after hours, mm. they see her. It's like, oh, no, she saw us committing crimes that we were filming ourselves doing. We should stop her. And I'm like, you filmed yourself <laughs> committing crimes. What were you going to uh. do? So they keep the camera on, and they're idiots, and they try to tell her, like, oh, I'm so, so bad. I was just, I was so insecure. I just had to commit all these crimes. And and then they end up locked inside the school, which you, I mean, that's mm. got to be supernatural because yeah. it's like legally you have to be able to exit any school. You can't necessarily well, get in, but you have to be able to exit in case there's a fire and emergency. Also, there are like uh, emergency exits and a hundred other exits besides. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, windows a lot of ways and everything. That, yeah, there's a million ways to get out of a school. There no, have no, to be. No school is a single hallway. Yeah, there has to be. Mm-hmm. So they're all busted, so it's got to be supernatural. And they end up being haunted by the ghost of the kid that died and is killing them all. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. It's not good. So I didn't have high hopes for the sequel, but I will say yeah. this for The Gallows Act 2. Although I wouldn't really call it a particularly good movie, it's better than The Gallows. Well, but if The Gallows stinks, then that's not much of praise, is it? I'm giving credit where credit is due. And sure enough, it's made by the same writer-director team. 
Okay. So at the very least, they've improved. All right. Uh, it's Good. not found footage anymore, which is an interesting choice for a sequel. All right. So we're totally changing the dynamic. Uh, we meet a, a an aspiring young actor named Anna Rue, played by Emma Horvath, who is actually very good. Oh, I think I've seen her in something. I don't know if you have, but regardless, she's good. She's got like a young Hillary Swank vibe. Hmm. Um, And I think she carries the film really, really well. She's going to this new school that has an acclaimed theater program, and she really wants to be a famous actor. And when her like her first day she goes up for a monologue and she totally bombs it and so she needs to find new material and that's when one of her like youtube followers because she's doing like the eighth grade thing trying to build up an audience on youtube uh suggests what has come to be known as the charlie challenge the ghost from the gallows his name was charlie Mm -hmm. and in the years that followed since the you know the deaths of those kids in the gallows one the found footage actually found its way onto the internet and now like there's a whole thing where reading scenes from the gallows has become like the scary thing people do and you do it on camera and like will okay. a ghost it's, visit it's you like, and maybe they will it's like an urban myth now like an original urban I'm, legend i'm fine with all this is not okay. bad it's not a bad way to go oh so she decides to go to the library pick up a copy of the gallows she does the monologue on camera. She doesn't even notice that like her desk moves while she does it, and that makes her kind of a mo- kind of like a YouTube celebrity. Like, oh my god, can you believe that? Oh, it's so fake. But she keeps doing it, and more ghost stuff happens, and she thinks it's really cool. And the monologue goes over really, really well in class. Problem is, the ghost won't leave her alone now, and the ghost probably won't be happy until she's dead. All right. There are worse setups for a movie. Mm. There really, really are. Um, and... I actually kind of like the conversation this movie is trying to have um, about sort of theater anxieties. Um, okay. A horror movie sh- yeah, horror movies should play off of anxieties. That's, mm. that's kind of their whole shtick. You know, they should try to hit something that will scare you. And in the theater community, there's a lot of, in addition to stage fright, which they talk about, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to uh, insecurity, which can strike a lot of different actors and, and uh, artists of various kinds, as you have to have a certain amount of humility uh, in order to do what you do, but you also have to have a certain amount of ego to think anyone wants to see it. Yeah. And that balance can be really tricky, and that's something a lot of people struggle with. Um there's also it's also worth noting that the theater community is incredibly superstitious, yeah. at, at least historically. You know, you hear mm. don't, you, you don't, can't don't say the name of the Scottish play in a theater unless exactly. you're putting up performance. I, I've heard famous of uh, famous actors who kicked people out of a theater for saying the name of the Scottish play. <laughs> We're not putting out a production, so we can say Macbeth. Yeah, it's Macbeth, it's, but it, Macbeth is considered kind of a cursed you're, play. You're not supposed to say the title of Macbeth in a theater unless you're performing it. Yeah, on stage when you're saying, "Hey, Macbeth." Get over here. Like, or, then it's or, fine. Or, but or like, you're like, if you're like backstage. Okay, that's when Macbeth picks up the. No, no, it's bad luck. Come on. That's when the Scottish guy. Like, um, <laughs> when Scott. <laughs> call him Scott. Scott. Um, so I'm with you here. And there's actually some like kind of subtle scares here, some decent camera work. There's two really big problems that really drag the gallows down. First off, watching well, one minor problem, which is as good as this movie gets, it's never great. Like even if it was I don't like, think it, uh, even not, if everything, not to, not to put out any prejudices, but I don't think it could be. Well, I don't. I, <laughs> it doesn't I think seem even, like the kind of movie that could be. Even even at its best, I think this movie was at best going to be like two and a half stars. Okay. Um, but there are two things that that fuck it up. One, mm-hmm. they end. It's like they lost their patience or their nerve. And even though they build some subtle scares, some of which are actually kind of effective, the jump scares suck. They add CGI, mm-hmm. which doesn't belong, and it looks really cheap. 
that part's terrible. Um, this is not the big deal, but like there's one bit where we see the ghost of Charlie in the background. And um, he's wearing like Hangman's outfit, but it looks like he's wearing culottes. And I just don't think culottes are scary. <laughs> My wife pointed that out, and I was uh-huh. like, "You're right. He is wearing culottes. That's weird." <laughs> um, the bigger problem, though, and this is something that it's just hard to discuss in detail, but it's one of those movies that is completely torpedoed by the ending. Oh, they like change the premise, or there's yeah, a well, twist or something. There, there's some twists, and a lot of them are sort of fine. Like I'm with you. They're kind of hackney, but whatever. It's fine. Mm-hmm. The last, like, button, like, Mm. joke or line of dialogue, I don't want to ruin it in case you do see it, make the entire movie about something really dumb. Oh. Goes from something that was actually, like, kind of specific to its world of theater and um, had its own thing to say and ended up just being like, ha-ha, yeah? Hmm. And I'm like, no, that's stupid, and you you made this about the wrong thing. Uh Um, And then... It's it's such a disappointment because at the very least, it, I mean, at the very least, it's an improvement. Like a for effort. Like you guys improved. The filmmakers improved. Yeah, good for them. That's encouraging. I might actually like be interested in hiring them for something else now. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it, they really just screwed it up in the last like twenty seconds. Oh, it's so disappointing. Golly, I'm so sorry. So um, anyway, if you, I know a few people like the gallows. Mm. Cool. Uh, I, I'd move past it. I don't think it's a good version of a found footage movie. But if you did see the sequel, it is better. All right. Um, and yeah, if you don't have particularly high standards for your horror, you might have an okay time. Yeah. And certainly Emma Horvath, I, I think she has a future ahead of her. So right. I, I looked her up. I, I don't know her from anything. No, she, I fine. haven't seen any of her movies. Uh, and then lastly, the last film I want to discuss is a new documentary that I have seen called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Okay. Uh, it is a documentary about sound design, which is that one of the sounds, most sounds about right. Which is one of the most important yet misunderstood aspects of motion picture production. Because there's two Oscars for it, and people every year have to figure out what the difference between those two are. Yep. Um, sound design, uh, obviously, uh, you know, is the art of putting sound in a movie. And if you're sort of don't know how film production works, it's way more complicated than you think. Most movies record sound live. With a, mm-hmm. with a microphone as the actors are talking. You hear, see that guy with the big microphone on a stick. It's called a boom. They're carrying it around, trying to make sure they capture all the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But then you're not done. Because, A, that dialogue might not be usable, in which case you might need to record it later. Mm-hmm. B, those microphones might pick up stuff they're not supposed to, in which case you need to mix it out. Mm-hmm. C, you're not picking up all of the little sound effects, the footfalls, the rustling of keys, the, you know, the gunshots might not sound right. Yeah. Uh, so you got to add those in post. Sometimes you have to create entirely new sound effects if you're doing a sci-fi fantasy film, for example. Mm. Sometimes you do have to create them new sound effects just because the actual sound effects sound stupid. <laughs> like it was, uh, there's a bit in here where they talk about the movie Top Gun, where they're like, mm. "Yeah, we went to an aircraft carrier and we recorded uh, like jets. Mm. You know what jets sound like? Crap. <laughs> we had to come up with an entirely new sound for jets so that they sounded that awesome. Kind of zooming noise was yeah. a film invention. It's like it's like yeah, we we took a lot of like roars from big cats and we slowed them down so they mm. sounded like really feral and awesome. <laughs> and it's really cool. And nice. I took I took some sound design I, classes in school and it was the coolest classes I took on a technical level. They're really fascinating. Well, and uh, sound design still seems to be one of those fields where there's a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of creating those things, um, in the era of CGI, it's all fixed in post. And they just sort of add it digitally, and 
I love hearing the stories about how they had to do something like really cheap and guerrilla style. And you can't tell when you see the finished product. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I'm reminded of a story from the production of the original, the Terminator from 1984. There's a scene where, uh, the Terminator's like spoilers, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's the, the, five years old. The, now. The, the, the monster is crushed in a hydraulic press yeah. and there's a close up of the monster's face. And we see sort of like a light going out of its eye mm-hmm. showing the, the monster dying. And evidently they forgot to film that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, James Cameron went out to his garage. He got two sheets of aluminum foil, a tiny little Christmas light and a cigarette. And he zoomed in really close in this dark area with the, this little light in between the two pieces of foil, unplugged it and blew a, a plume of cigarette smoke. That's that shot. Yeah. In his garage. It's incredible. And and it works perfectly well. And I, I feel like that kind of guerrilla creativity only exists in sound design now, where they're doing things like record, going out to a zoo and recording animals or recording actual ambient sound and mixing it themselves. I, I'm sure there's like, a lot of people behind the scenes who would disagree with you that that's the only place where yeah. it exists, but it does exist there. And this movie is completely in love with the history of it. Mm-hmm. And they take you for the, the movies in two halves. The mm-hmm. first half is the history of sound design. No. The second half is all of the modern elements of sound design. Okay. Give you, there's not enough time to go into a lot of detail, but they interview like, okay, here's uh, automated dialogue replacement. That's what they call it mm. when you have to re-record dialogue in post. Mm. Um, we talk about ADR a lot. Yeah, that's it's called ADR. Um, they actually show a scene that I didn't know was ADR. I actually have a pretty good ear for ADR. Mm-hmm. You Sometimes get, you can just hear like this doesn't sound the, like it was recorded. The sound quality is a little different. Yeah, right? it's it, it's usually imperceptible, but if you pay attention to sound design, you can often tell. Uh, the there's no crying in baseball scene from League of Their Own. Uh-huh. ADR. No kidding. Did not know that the crying didn't sound right, and because it's <laughs> a lot of overlapping dialogue with the actors uh-huh. and and Tom Hanks, uh-huh. they couldn't just do one part. They had to do the entire scene in ADR. Wow. You'd never know. Hmm. It's impeccable. There's a great bit where uh, they're talking about ambient sound, which is sort of room tone. Like, if yeah. you turn off all, if you stop talking and you turn off all of your radios or whatever like that and you just listen, hmm. you'll hear just, it's called room tone. You know, it's just the way the world sounds when nothing is happening in it. Maybe there's a bird in the background or a little bit of breeze or the buzzing of a refrigerator, or just something. Hmm. Uh, and ambient noise can be really, really tricky because if there's too much of it, it can really fuck up a movie. And they show you a great example from Ordinary People. Ooh, I, have, I haven't seen Ordinary People. I actually haven't seen Ordinary what, People either. What, I know it won I, Best Picture. Yeah, I need no. to get around to it. But it's a film about a, uh, a, a young man and his, I think his brother died and he's got to go to a psychologist. And they just saw this scene with in a psychologist's office hmm. and just a little dialogue. And you find out that it was Robert Redford's first movie, and he made a really bad error in which he shot on a soundstage near a freeway. Oh, jeez. So, so the ambient so got noise, all the freeway noise. The ambient noise sucked. <laughs> and you hear the original audio track, and it sounds like they should be shouting over construction work. Like, it's just completely hmm. messed up. It doesn't sound professional at all. And then without re-recording it, without doing ADR, mm-hmm. the sound designers worked out. And this is, again, back in the early 80s where they weren't doing it on computer. They had magnetic strips. <laughs> sound designers managed to tweak it all down so that you'd never know it wasn't a quiet room. All right. Absolutely astounding to see in here. Um. So that part's all cool. It's kind of a broad overview. And if you already know mm-hmm. about it, you might be interested in the examples. But... 
you might not blow your mind. But if you don't know about it, it's really interesting. And these are all exciting fields which you might want to pursue. I give a lot of credit to the filmmakers for trying to put in all different kinds of people so that you see mm-hmm. it's actually kind of a inclusive environment. And it's not just men. It's not just women. It's everyone. Um, I have a few issues with the history part. Mm-hmm. Um, because they do this thing where I get it, it's all about sound design, but they treat the silent era as only an excuse to get to sound. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. which is I get it. They're talking about sound design, but it kind of under, sort of fatalism. It, yeah. it sort of undermines the artistry of silent cinema in its own right. And silent cinema wasn't this like period of like thirty years in which no one was doing anything interesting. There's a lot of brilliant silent films that need absolutely no sound hmm. to be perfect. And they need to be put on all the streaming services they, and made widely available to they, a modern audience. They do. But anyway. <laughs> uh, so somebody do that. But, uh, you know, they talk about how sound recording came before, you know, film recording, like motion picture recording. Hmm. And uh, motion picture recording was partly developed by Thomas Edison, at least, although he wasn't the only one who developed it, uh, to go along with sound. But it took a while to... Marry the two. They talk about how a lot of silent productions had not just piano players, but also mm. full orchestration and even some sound effects in some st- uh, theaters, um, like live sound effects done by Foley artists on stage. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Uh, but then they start getting into once synchronized sound became possible. Then they start talking about how King Kong was such a game changer, and then they had to create mm. like roars of monsters that didn't exist before. And um, they spend most of their time. Talking about uh, Walter Murch, who was a pioneering okay, sound yeah. designer uh, behind films like The Godfather and uh, specifically Apocalypse Now, which was the they argue, and I'm not sure this is I don't know if this is wrong or not, but mm-hmm. I'll bet it's probably mostly true. History isn't usually super easy. Like, oh, and this film did all that. Yeah, well, yeah there, there are there are precedents. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Apocalypse Now was, they argue, the first film to treat sound design the way it is treated now, like different parts of an orchestra. Okay. Because for many years, sound was, first off, for decades, mm. in fact, for about half a century, sound in theaters was mono, came out of only one speaker. Mm. Wasn't an immersive experience. You couldn't hear stuff behind you. Mm. You just heard it coming out of the front. Mm. And it was fine for a while. And there wasn't a lot of complicated sound design. Not everything was foleyed all the time. Right. A lot of the foley effects were just things that were on a library. The same gunshot was used over and over again in hundreds of movies, that kind of thing. And if you're a, a film fanatic, you recognize that stuff. Exactly. It's the reason why we have the quote-unquote Wilhelm scream. Mm-hmm. Just It's in the library. We can use it whenever we want. It's a classic. Um, so, the, the, and they've retired it? The Wilhelm scream? No, it still pops up I, once in a while. I, I heard it in one movie recently, and they called attention to it, and they kind of like took it off. Yeah, it was um, of all things, Ratchet and Clank, oh, yeah. the animated film. There was was this, there a character named Wilhelm or something? Well, there was just this big battle scene going on, and a bunch of people were falling off of like catwalks and down, you know, hundreds of feet, and the, you know, robots were dying by the the score. And it was this comedy film, so there was like robots like walking down a catwalk. One gets knocked over a, a ledge, and you hear the Wilhelm scream as it falls down. And another incidental ro- robot just sort of leans over the ledge and says, Wilhelm! And that's all. <laughs> it's a funny that's joke. All we hear, yeah. It's a funny joke. Um, so uh, Walter Murch was one of the people who pioneered the idea of full orchestration of surround sound, mm. sound design. Uh, we also uh, get into Ben Burt, 
who was the sound like Ben Burt. Uh, ben Burt was the sound designer George Lucas hired because Walter Murch was busy on a Francis Ford Coppola film <laughs> to do Star Wars. Star Wars, okay. Ben Burt, uh, who I think was at USC at the time, he was just uh, doing interesting things with sound. And he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to create a soundscape entirely from scratch. He didn't want to use anything familiar. So since it's Star Wars and everything is new, he actually created like a map of Southern California where he would go to record very distinct sounds. Okay. So we're not just going to use some random growl for Chewbacca's voice. We're going to go around and play with a baby bear. And it turns <laughs> out that Chewbacca's signature, that is a baby bear enticed by bread. Aww. You show bread to be a bear, it goes, that's the, that's the Chewbacca how, noise. How, how many hours of that noise did they, you think they had to record and mix to it get those It must have been words. a ton. Yeah. Um, and so, like, punches, everything, everything was distinct. Mm. And as a result, the movie didn't sound like anything else at the time. It's one of the great innovations of Star Wars people don't talk about enough. Um, and then the last person they go into great detail of, the last great pioneer of sound design, uh, is Gary Rydstrom, which, who is uh, the sound designer Pixar got because they couldn't get Ben Burt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is pretty funny. Um, and he's the one who did um, the sound effects for Luxo. Oh, okay. Yeah, the... the- Short film about the living lamps. Yeah, you know the lamp and like the the opening of the Pixar animation. L- Luxo Junior. Yeah, Luxo Junior is the name of the lamp in the Pixar logo. It had its own short film. It was an early CGI short film by John Lasseter, and it was just a Don't lamp mix. and a baby lamp, and they were hmm. playing around. And it's adorable. It's a really cute short. Oh, but the, the John, sound John Lasseter was the story goes he was sitting at his desk and he didn't know what to animate. Yeah. Like, oh, the lamp. The lamp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what Gary Rydstrom did was he took that lamp. And he was like, okay, what does a lamp sound like? Hmm. What do we do with a lamp? <laughs> and so he came up with ways to anthropomorphize sound hmm. in ways that hadn't been done before. Okay. And that led to him ending up doing the sound design on Jurassic Park and creating the signature, you know, dinosaur hmm. growls and everything. And and away we go. All of that's really interesting. And so if you have any interest in sound design at all, if you don't have any interest in sound design but you love the art of filmmaking, this is a fantastic primer. I highly recommend seeing this. I also definitely highly recommend seeing it um, in a theater if you can, because mm-hmm. obviously sound design, or at the very least with either like surround sound headphones or a surround sound system at home if you can, mm-hmm. uh, because it's about sound design, and they do things with sound design to illustrate their point. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Sounds like uh, Visions of Light. Yeah, a little bit. I think Visions of Light was a little bit more inspirational in some Hmm. ways. Like they were going like, this is the magic of cinema. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Visions of Light is a very uh, prominent documentary about the art of cinematography. Uh, It it came out in the early 90s. It's been a while since since it came out. Was that a print for a long time? It might still be. Maybe so. But if if you can find Visions Visions of Light, please watch it. But... Uh, it sounds like the, this one is destined to go into classrooms. Oh, this is going to be like re- first day of film school sound design class. You watch this. It's a really quick primer. Mm. It's not enough. Like it's a, This isn't enough to get you a job in the industry. You're going to need to do a lot of supplemental reading and whatever like that. But it's a con- conversant re- all of a sudden. It's a, yeah, it's a really good start. Okay. And so it, a lot of people don't talk about sound design enough. We talk about what we see. We don't often talk about what we hear. This is a really, really, really good start. What's your favorite sound design in a movie? Ooh. And you can say Star Wars. That's fine. I, can, I could, and it's tempting, but it's it's actually a bit of a cliche, so I don't mm. want to kind of go there. Um, I don't know. What's yours? Um, Sounds like you thought it out. Well, uh, I have 
Eraserhead, of course. Yeah. Uh, all, all those like weird groaning machine noises just to, uh, stri- strike right into a deep part of me. But... Eraserhead's a big part of the documentary, actually. Oh, is it really? Okay, yeah, great. Like, not huge, yeah, but like, they spent a couple minutes talking about Eraserhead. Amazing sound design in Eraserhead. Uh, the other person would be Treg Brown, who came up with all of the sound effects for the Looney Tunes shorts. Oh, that's a good yeah. one. That's a good one. Mm. I don't know who did the sound design of it, but actually I think my favorite sound effect that I can think of mm. is the sound effect from Evil Dead 2. <laughs> where they're trying to make the house like the cabin seem scary and there's just this one shot of a wooden plank and the wooden plank is loud yeah like it groans as if it's bending this yeah. is what a wooden plank sounds like but it's not what a wooden plank sounds like at all and <laughs> a, wooden, a wooden plank doesn't make any sound like, it's a wooden plank <laughs> i don't know why that it's just so perfect to mm. me i really love that mm. um i'm sure i can think of it i hadn't really yeah. thought of this i'm sure i can think of better examples if yeah. i really gave it a muddle um in any case it's time to review our films mm. uh we review films on the scale of c minus to c plus a c is a perfectly average movie mm. it's fine done uh <laughs> a c plus is above average might be good might mm. be legitimately great maybe one of the best movies ever made they all get a c plus c minus is below average it's not very good it's genuinely bad one of the worst movies ever made they all get a c minus um making waves is a big old c plus mm. um i've seen better documentaries of course but it does its job really 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 well i kind of wish they hadn't stuck it to silent cinema the way that they did but that's a quibble uh. i'll let it slide um, the Gallows uh, is a, a high C minus. Like it comes close to being <laughs> adequate. All right. The Gallows Act Two comes close to being adequate, but it doesn't quite hit it. Uh, Girl on the Third Floor is a big old C plus. It's one of the better horror movies I've uh, seen this I, year. I will catch up with that one. I think you'll at dig some it. Point, yeah. I think you'll dig it. Uh, and now uh, Countdown. Countdown is a big old C minus. It's a big dumb piece of dumb. Uh, it's <laughs> put that on your poster. Yeah, it's it's a dumb premise, and they don't elevate it in any kind of creative way. There's not enough wit or energy to save it. It's just a bad film. Uh, I I slightly disagree with you. I'm mm. going to give it a C. I think it oh, saves. Right. I think by the second half, it saves itself, and it gets fun enough, and it gets funny enough, mm. and I am finally convinced that the filmmakers were self aware and were doing most of this stuff on purpose. Mm. Uh, it's not enough I, to make it good, but it is they, enough they, to make it an okay watch right, and I had they, a good enough time. They might have lost me at that point. Yeah. Um, and Dolomite is my name. Mm, Dolomite. They should have called it My Name is Dolomite is My Name. That should have been the title. <laughs> uh, it's a C plus. I, I really... It's... You, there aren't too many films where you leave feeling as good as you will after Dolomite is my name. It's yeah. it's just such a, a, a relentlessly positive, glorious movie, and it'll make you interested in reading Ray Moore if you haven't heard of him before, and it'll just make you go back and watch them again if you already are. So, it, yeah, just a terrific film. Big old C-plus for me as well. Uh, very probably going to end up in my top ten of the year. Excellent. Like I just, it really I'm hit not, all my I'm, buttons. It probably won't make my list, but I'm not going to argue that. Yeah, it, it it hits my buttons. It knows what I'm into. It knows all I'm right. into cult cinema and <laughs> history wow. and underdog stories mm. and yeah, all of these things. They're they're very much up my alley. So mm. I'm very excited uh, to, that uh, this movie gets to be seen by such a wide audience, and I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah. Uh, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week, and it's another big one. Uh, we've got Terminator: Dark Fate. We've got Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, and of course, Arctic Dogs. Of course, Arctic Dogs. Which is an animated film about Arctic Dogs, man. It's like eight below. But belower. There are a lot of lot of films about Arctic Dogs. Is there one just called Iditarod? 
just about the. There edge should of that. be. There I, should don't be yeah. I don't know if there is. I don't know actually. Mm. There's White Fang. There's White Fang Two. There's Balto. There's Balto Five through Eight or whatever. I think there's like yeah. There's eight there's or nine Baltos. A ton there's, of Alpha and Omega movies somehow. I remember reading a book. I forgot the title of the book, but I remember reading a book when I was a kid. It's a kid's book about a dog that dies because they all die, don't they? Mm, mostly. Old, old yeah. Yeller, Red Fern grows, and this one about. I think Shiloh a, lives. Does Shiloh live? I think Shiloh has my, a rough has a rough go of it, but I think my, it turns out okay. In my the dog end. Skip dies, but the, just ages out. You know, just dies yeah. of old age. Well, I mean, yeah, the, but this, this at is some about point, a, we, we all die, Whitney. Uh, <laughs> let's speak for yourself, mortal. I mean, uh, like, I mean, if you think about it, like. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was about a, a young boy, like a teenage boy, who wanted to enter the Iditarod, and he only had his one dog named Searchlight. That's what I remember, is the dog was named Searchlight. And, uh, and of course, they were, like, scrappy, and they knew how to, you know, really push themselves, and they were able to race a lot faster than all of the other professionals. And at the, the climactic scene of the book was he's racing, he's racing, he's racing. Searchlight is running his heart out and Searchlight's heart explodes moments before they reach the finish line. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you're thinking of Stone Fox. That's it. Yeah. All right. There aren't that many books about a dog named Searchlight. It was pretty easy to get. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the dog named Stone Fox. Yeah. Well, of course, now you know how it ends. Whoops. Um, yeah. Well, and, and Searchlight dies. And of course, the, there's the moment where like the, the professional who's right behind him stops. Stops every like fires a gun into the air and says, Shut up! He's gonna win. And this crying boy picks up his dead dog and limps across the finish line. Oh god. <laughs> it's like the most melodramatic thing. It's so crazy. Um anyway. We won't be reviewing that next week. That, we will be reviewing that's, an animated that's, comedy that's called an Arctic, Arctic Dog. Arctic Dog will die. Oh <laughs> and some boy will limp across the finish Can line. Um uh, but I'm very excited because it'll be episode one oh one and that's a palindrome. You like the palindrome episodes? I, I do like palindrome okay. episodes, it's pretty cool. You like palindromes? Palindromes are awesome. Uh, I, I do love palindromes. My, my phone number growing up was a palindrome, so it was easy to distribute. You know what sucks? Hmm. Palindrome is not a palindrome. I know. That sucks. What were you be, thinking? <laughs> a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Just call it that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'll, that'll be uh, next week on Critically Claimed. I want to thank everybody uh, for listening. We hope uh, you check out the good movies, and if you check out the bad movies, we hope you enjoy them more than mm-hmm. we did. Uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash Critic Acclaim. Uh, I want to give everyone a fair warning. We will probably be changing the address of our Patreon account to something more akin to Critically Acclaimed Network. Mm-hmm. Um, for a couple of technical reasons, it's weird, but um, yeah, just heads up. That mm-hmm. might be shifting. Um, and uh, yeah, your, your, your subscription isn't going anywhere. Your, no, if you're your subscribed, isn't fine. going anywhere. You yeah. might need to change your RSS feed. Like that's the worst case scenario. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's that's about that. And we have more episodes coming. We'll do a mailbag episode this week. We have a new Cancel Too Soon coming this week. Um, we're gonna catch up. It's just been a rough couple of weeks it's for been a variety a, a reasons. A really rough couple of weeks. No no one is ill, the fires are going out, and we should be able to get back to our ordinary, yeah. ordinary deluge of content. Yeah, we got like two busy days ahead of us, and then we'll be fine. Mm. So uh, again, thank you everybody for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week. Stay safe out there. It's a rough world. Um, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Especially have a happy Halloween. And uh, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>